Good morning, I'm Ellie Jones. Please stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading from 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Uh, my name's Joey. I'm one of the lead pastors here. I'm looking forward to digging into this passage that was just read from 2 Timothy. Um, if, we've, you know, if we've spent time together, you and I, and you've gotten to know me a little bit, you may already know this, but I am the oldest of five boys. I have four younger brothers. And given the chaos that existed in a house with five young boys, plus my dad, my poor mother, um, my parents were very quick to hand off responsibilities for watching the other four boys, babysitting duties to me, the oldest, so they could enjoy some time out alone together. And I hated it. I hated babysitting my younger brothers. Did any of you grow up having to babysit your younger siblings? It's the worst job in the world, isn't it? Absolutely. The reason, thank you, I got an amen. The reason I hated it was because they would not listen to me, ever, at all. Every Friday night, it was some version of the same fight. Me, it's time for bed. Mom and dad said we have to go to bed at 8 p.m. My brothers, that's not what mom and dad said. Mom and dad said we have a bunch of chores we have to get done before we go to bed at 8, and we don't have the chores done, so we can't go to bed yet. <laughs> Me, it doesn't matter if the chores aren't done or not. We have to go to bed at 8. My brothers, who died and left you in charge? Me, I'm telling mom. <laughs> then we start punching each other, and eventually I'll go to bed, and I'll try to stay awake so we can be the first ones to complain to mom and dad about each other when they get home, but then we inevitably end up getting in trouble for not getting the chores done. Every Friday night, that's the way it was. It was kind of my first real experience of being like in charge or uh, of being the, the one who had to take a, a command from someone else and, and communicate it, you know, interpret it to other people, to take what mom and dad had said was the rule and interpret it for my younger brothers. And they never listened. They still don't listen. I have no authority. Now, my parents eventually figured out that they should maybe just write it down for us once all of us could read. If we all could just read the same thing, we wouldn't argue anymore about what it meant. I think 
was the hope. And so they started writing down the rules for us. In bed by eight, these chores done. Joey does this one, Tony does this one, et cetera, all the way down the list. And so given the combative nature of our brotherhood, we just started arguing about what they meant by what they had written. And I had one interpretation and my other brothers had the other one and my interpretation was usually I'm in charge, I get to decide, and theirs was no, you're not. And anyway, it was, my entire childhood was fights about what mom and dad really meant. Now I tell that story because it's the same kind of argument that was facing the church in the 1500s. Right around this time period, 500 years ago, in the 1500s, 1517 to be exact, Uh, The church had God's written instructions, if you will, in Scripture, but the oldest brother on the block, the Roman church, was claiming absolute authority to interpret those written words for everyone else. And so the fight about who gets to say what God meant by what he said became the first key argument in the movement that today we have called the Reformation. For the month of October, we're spending five weeks talking about this movement, the Reformation, uh, for a couple of reasons. Now, some of you may not be as familiar with with what the Reformation was. Uh, It was a movement begun, like I said, about 500 years ago, even before that, actually, for about 100 years before, a a series of individuals within the Roman church trying to reform the church from the inside, trying to say, look, there's some things that we're teaching that don't line up with Scripture. We need to we need to come back into line with Scripture. Now, we're, we're talking about this now in the month of October because October 31st, 2017 marks that 500th anniversary of a young Augustinian monk named Martin Luther affixing 95 complaints about the theology of the Catholic Church to the door of Castle Church in Wittenberg or Wittenberg or something like that. Now, he did it. He nailed it to the door there because the door served as sort of the the public bulletin board for the town. If you needed something, like needed manure scooper for the farm, whatever, you would nail it to the board and someone would find it and, you know, they do that. It was like, not, not really like the Facebook of the time, but it was a place where people could communicate needs and discussions and make announcements. Now, Luther wrote his 95 complaints in Latin because he didn't intend them for public consumption. It was for within the church. It was for the church leaders to read and discuss and debate. And while he intended for the discussion to be held within the church, the reason we celebrate this moment as the anniversary of the Reformation is because he inadvertently started a movement that shook the entire Western world. Because the Reformation, while at heart was a spiritual movement, it was also a political movement. Depending on who you read, different historians and theologians will give you a different emphasis to this overall huge movement. And if you want to get more of of an understanding of the people who went into it or the the theology that came out of it or that drove it, I'd recommend uh, checking out one of the connection classes that we've got running. Both hours, there's a class that digs more into the Reformation. The 9 a.m. class focuses uh, more on the people, the characters involved and their, their biographies, their stories. And the 1045 class focuses on the, uh, the theology of Martin Luther. So if this is the first you're hearing about those classes, you already missed your chance this week, but next week, set an alarm, you can come for the 9 a.m. and learn more about the people of the Reformation. Now, telling, telling the stories, the biographies, or, or digging into the theology of one person is not the goal of 
this month or this sermon series, this series we're calling God Alone. Uh, in this series, we are focusing on the five solas of the Reformation, the five solas, the five alones, because they're a summary of the theology that came out of this Reformation movement. Uh, they're kind of a shorthand way of describing what the Reformation was all about. Generally, at this point, theologians and historians looking back on the Reformation have, have identified five main movements. There's some saying we need to add a sixth and a seventh. It may surprise you to know there were only three generally accepted until about the 1950s when two more were added as being really clear and needing to be explained. So where we are right now in our understanding of this movement that is still having a profound effect on the church is we look at five solas. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Solus Christus, Christ alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Even though these are all in Latin, it does feel like that last one needs a bit of Italian in it, doesn't it? Like Sola Gratia. No? All right. Well, uh, sola fide, faith alone, and soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. Sola scriptura, solus Christus, sola gratia, sola fide, soli deo gloria. The five solas, the five alones of the Reformation that, that sum up Reformation theology. Now, there's a couple reasons we're taking the time to look back at these five solas. Uh, not least of which because it's part of our heritage as an evangelical free church. We are a daughter of the Reformation. And also because it's the 500th anniversary, it just seems like that only happens once, every once, ever. So we should celebrate it. But the main reason, the main reason we're looking back at these five solas is because as a church, we need to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds. That's the way C.S. Lewis put it. He made this point in one of his essays that every age has its own outlook. It's specially good at seeing certain truths and specially liable to make certain mistakes. We all, therefore, he says, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period. And that means the old books. He says the future books aren't accessible to us yet, so we got to go back to the old ones. Not, of course, because there's any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we do, but not the same mistakes. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they're unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. So we need to, we need to look back at the theology of the Reformation as a way of doing a bit of self-reflection, this is what the church believed at one certain time, a time that's kind of convenient to celebrate right now because it's the 500th anniversary. What do we believe? And does it line up with this Reformation movement? We're a church that came out of the Reformation. Do we still believe what the Reformers fought and died for? You know, in American evangelicalism, we tend to we tend to reduce theology down to a lowest common denominator in the hopes that it will help us all get along, or maybe not fight as much. Kind of a God loves everyone and wants us all to be nice to one another, and he only jumps in when we ask him to and otherwise invites all the good people to heaven when they die. That's not the Christianity that the reformers were fighting for. It's not the Christianity that comes from Scripture. So in an, in an effort to kind of respond to our times, we're going to go through the Reformation to look back at the gospel 
of Jesus Christ. Now, before we jump into today's alone, Sola Scriptura, I just want to make one final comment about the solas themselves. Uh, The five solas are not in themselves a full and complete doctrinal statement. Uh, The five solas are not intended to be an encapsulation or a sum total of what all Christians everywhere need to believe. Uh, The five solas assume a tradition of orthodox interpretation of Scripture and an orthodox explanation of the gospel. They're a reaction to their specific time and saying, whoa, 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 the church, the, the capital C church, the Roman church is teaching this. I don't think that's what Scripture's teaching. We need to look like this. And they outline these five kind of main responses to what the Catholic church was teaching. It's, it's a recovery expedition. They're trying to recover the gospel from the scriptures and from the early church fathers trying to, trying to recover it for their time. All right, well, let's jump in. Sola Scriptura. It's the one we're tackling today and tackling it first because it lays the foundation for the rest of the solas. Uh, and also because for the next four, we're going to go back to Ephesians. Uh, we spent last month in Ephesians 1 uh, talking about who God is. We're going to continue in Ephesians 1 and 2 Uh, talking about these fundamental beliefs that came out of the Reformation and finding those four solas, the next four solas explained in Ephesians. Uh, But sola scriptura is not found in Ephesians, so we couldn't start there. It's actually not really a doctrine that's expounded anywhere in Scripture. It's an approach to Scripture that is assumed by the Bible. It was sort of implicitly understood until it came under attack and then had to be explicitly explained but there are hints, and there's at least enough guidance within Scripture for us to uh, say with certainty what we mean by Scripture alone, by sola scriptura, which is why we're in 2 Timothy 3. So if you haven't turned there, go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 3. Uh, it's on page 1182 of the, the Bible that's underneath the seat in front of you if you want to follow along there, or you can just Google 2 Timothy 3 and see what comes up. Now, we've already heard the passage read, so I'm not going to reread the whole thing, Uh, especially the the first four verses, 10 through 13, are uh, Paul talking to Timothy about what kind of persecution he has experienced and what he should expect, and and that leads him then to verse 14 and 15, where I want to start to focus, because he's describing evil people and imposters, but he says, "But, but as for you, Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, against this behavior that you're seeing, I want you to stay firm and committed to what you have believed. Continue to believe it because you know who you learned it from. You know where you read it. And you know what outcome came out of it. It made you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So the scriptura comes out of this passage. But before I explain how, we need to wrestle with the definition of what sola scriptura is. One historian and theologian says, he says, let me put it simply. Sola scriptura means that the scriptures, the Bible, uh, what you're holding in your hands or scrolling on your screen, uh, the scriptures alone, quote, contain all things necessary for salvation, communicates them effectively, compels our consciences, determines doctrinal truth, 
and commands the church's allegiance above all other powers. Theologians aren't good at simple definitions. So we'll simplify it a little bit more. Uh, Sola Scriptura means that Scripture is the primary and supreme authority in theology. Primary and supreme. In other words, first and last. Scripture is the first and last authority. The Bible has the first and final say. In other words, only in Scripture do we have God say so in written and permanent form. The Bible is God's first and final authority because it derives its authority from Him. Now, this is, this is important because the Roman church at the time that Luther posted his 95 theses, his 95 complaints, the Roman church at the time was teaching that tradition, uh, the teachings of the church that had aggregated over the centuries, that tradition held as important an authority as Scripture itself. The very next year, one Catholic theologian wrote, whoever does not hold fast to the teachings of the Roman church and of the Pope as the infallible rule of faith from which even Holy Scripture derives its strength and authority, is a heretic. And the reformer said, them's fighting words. We're going to have a discussion about this. And this is actually a perspective that, that the Roman Catholic Church has only solidified since the Reformation. Uh, Vatican II was a church council in the mid-20th century, put it this way, the church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from sacred scripture alone. Both sacred scripture and sacred tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. So when the Reformers began to talk about sola scriptura, scripture alone, it was an attempt on their part to say that the Bible and the Bible alone, the Bible itself, not tradition, has first and final authority. The Bible is what tells tradition if it's correct or not, not the other way around. Luther, in other words, is saying, look, it's more important to believe, to agree with this than to agree with Rome. It's more important to believe and agree with Scripture than to agree with what the Pope teaches. Now, in our evangelical-type church, kind of a a, a Bible-first, a sola scriptura-type church, it's important for us to understand what Luther's saying. When he says sola scriptura, he's not saying nulla traditio. He's not saying no tradition. Scripture alone does not mean no tradition. Uh, He didn't ignore tradition himself. Most of the reformers appealed to the early church fathers to back up their teaching on what the gospel was. Uh, To them, tradition has a lot to teach us, but tradition was not its own authority itself. Tradition was the moon to Scripture's sun. Any light it has comes from reflecting a previous truth that's found in the Bible. So Martin Luther was not protesting tradition itself. What he was protesting was the Roman church's addition of tradition that contradicted the gospel. He's saying, look, we have the scriptures and we have a history of early church fathers telling us what that means and being in line with it, and now you're adding things that are obscuring that. You're adding things that are making it harder for us to understand what the gospel is. Those things need to go. Those are the things that he was arguing about. Because tradition is important to our faith development. One theologian calls tradition just the messy human historical process of seeking understanding. 
It's the same thing that you and I do, like come to greater understanding over time. It's just stretched out over the last 2,000 years in the history of the church. You could think of tradition in the same way you think of your own personal memories of what you know and what you've learned. Tradition is just the church's memory of what it's thought about, what it's argued about, what it's gone back and forth on. And and just as I would go to Pastor Jeff or Pastor Tom or one of the other elders or theologically wise and learned people at faith to help me figure out something that I don't understand, we should also go to the church around us and the church before us to be in conversation with them and, and let the church that has come before us help us understand what Scripture is saying. God's Spirit will use tradition to point us towards Christ. That's what the Reformers believed and what they've passed on to us. And that actually comes through in 2 Timothy 3. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. Paul's telling Timothy, As for you, continue in what you have learned and what you have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. You have to know, he, he says, to, to know that it's true, to remember that it's true, remember who you learned it from and where you learned it from. Remember the writings you learned it from and who explained them to you. You know, very rarely is someone's uh, conversion testimony something like, I sat down with a Bible and I read it and I came to Jesus. Now that happens and that's awesome when it happens. But for most of us, We sit down and we read and someone explains it to us. Someone connects the dots. Someone takes what we're reading in Scripture, in Timothy's case, what he was reading from the Jewish Scriptures, from the Old Testament, and says, you see this story? You see this story of God pursuing his people and never being able to fully and completely rescue them? You see that story? Let me tell you about Jesus and and who he is and what he has come to do. Timothy's mother, his grandmother were the ones who said, look, you see what you're reading there? This is how it connects to who Jesus is. We are all taught, we all learn what Scripture means when it says something. We all learn that within a community, within a body of other people who are reading that text together and going back and forth. What does this mean? What is God saying? And in many cases, most of us, our testimony is something like, so-and-so explained to me. I listened to a sermon, and it was explained for me the first time who God is and who Jesus was and who I am and what Jesus did and how I need to respond to him. God uses, the Holy Spirit uses the community of faith reading this book together to form each one of us, to bring us to him and then to equip us for what he's called us to do. And there's a goal to all of that, which Paul brings out in verse 15. He says, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, he's telling Timothy, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. They're able to make you wise for salvation. They introduce you to the gospel, in other words. They tell you who you are in front of God. They tell you who God is who Jesus was, what he did. And that's the key point that the reformers were trying to recapture. They weren't worried about tradition itself. They weren't worried about the teachings of uh, the traditional teachings within a church. They were worried about the wrong ones. They said these ones are obscuring the gospel and that's what's most important. 
They were saying the Roman church has left behind the tradition that pointed towards salvation and replaced it with something else and obscured the gospel. So sola scriptura, because it's in Latin, it may strike you as something that just theologians argue about. You know, we've spent 500 years now discussing whether or not sola scriptura was a good idea and whether having everybody, you know, having everybody go back to the, the Bible instead of to a church leader has created 40,000 different Protestant denominations. Was that a good idea or not? Sola Scriptura, though, is more than just a theological debate. Uh, it's more than just a historical reality that has led to the church we see today. It's a principle that has very real application for us Monday through Saturday, and Sunday too. It's a principle that we need to keep in mind and understand as we come to Scripture and submit ourselves to it. So I want to make two observations by way of application about Sola Scriptura and how it applies to us individually and as a church. Uh, So first, remember, Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone means that the Bible is our first and our final authority for faith in Christ. But Scripture alone doesn't mean a Scripture that is alone. Scripture alone doesn't mean only Scripture. We read the Bible ourselves, but we also read it together with one another and with the church around the world and with the church of the past, the church before us. Again, as C.S. Lewis said, two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but they're unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. So for yourself, let me just ask, how do you tend to read Scripture? Is it, is it you and your Bible? It's like me and Jesus alone by myself, and I'll read this, and you know whatever the Spirit tells me it means, that's what it means? Just by, by way of free warning, if, if you are reading, if you're reading something and you're like, wow, I just discovered something that no one has ever seen before. This is brand new, revolutionary. It's the key to unlocking the whole Bible, and everybody needs to know this. Just pause a moment and think, I might be wrong. (laughs) If you're coming up with something no one's ever thought of before, chances are there's a very high likelihood you're not correct. But it's getting that out of the way. How do you read the Bible? Do you sit down and read it just you? I'm just going to read this, and whatever God's Spirit tells me it means, that's what it means. Or are you reading it within a community? You know, we are, Protestants have been called people of the book because of sola scriptura, which means we are a people who come to a book that we did not write, that we did not assemble, that has been handed down to us as authoritative, and we submit ourselves to it. And I know that flies in the face of every modern sensibility that says, no, I'm not going to submit myself to some external thing that someone else is telling me I have to submit to that I get no say in or no control over. This should submit to me. It's the way we tend to think. So whether, whether in our minds we just take the parts that we like and leave out the parts we don't, or like Thomas Jefferson, we take actual razor blades and glue and cut out the parts that we like and glue them together into one narrative. We can't do that. As, as people of the book, we submit ourselves to this book. And if we exclude from it everything that we don't like, we end up with a, we end up with a God who can't ever disagree with us. And 
Like, what good is that? How are we supposed to grow and learn more about God if he can never confront us and tell us where we're wrong? So we submit ourselves to this book, but because we are a people of a book that God is assuming is being read in community, we also submit ourselves to one another. We don't sit down solo scriptura and just read it ourselves by ourselves, determining what it means for ourselves. We read it in conversation with one another, with the church around the world, and with the church that has come before us. So if you want to apply this to your own life, I'd say pick a passage, pick a book, find a couple of people. It may be a small group. It may be your family. It may be a guy's group. It may be the Friday morning men's Bible study. It may be the Wednesday morning women's Bible studies. Whatever it is, sit down with a group of people, read something, and say, I think this is what it means. What do you think? Now, don't go around the table and say, what does it mean to you? Because it doesn't have a different meaning for each person. It may have a different application for each person, but it has a meaning that God intended. And your goal as a group of individuals reading it together is to discover what that means in conversation with one another and with the church around and before you. So first, like, read it in a group. Then maybe grab a commentary or two. Uh, I really like the Bible Knowledge Commentary if you're just looking for a place to get started. It's two volumes, Old Testament, New Testament. I've given it to students before. It's a good place to start. Bible knowledge commentary. Start there and, and, and become conversant with asking others from the church around us what they think a passage means. Or if you want a real challenge, uh, take it cross-cultural. Uh, find somebody or a couple of people who didn't grow up in the same kind of middle-class Midwestern upbringing that you had and sit down with somebody and read a passage about persecution with somebody who had to flee their home country because of actual persecution uh, because of a, a violent oppression from a, a dictatorial government or political unrest or something like that. Read the scriptures with the church around the world and the church before us as a way of conversing. What does this mean? How do I learn? Sola Scriptura means we are a people of the book and a people of the church who read the book together. That's the first point of application. Second, sola scriptura means that the Bible has a purpose. There's a reason God gave us written word. There's a reason it's been written down and copied and passed around and read and, and translated and disseminated around the world. There's a reason that missionaries are, are working their lifetimes translating this book into a language that doesn't have it. Because the Bible has a purpose. It has one main purpose that God has promised he will use it for. Now, he has not promised he will use it for what we may want to use it for. Sometimes that's different. But he has promised, as Paul brings out here, he will use the sacred writings to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. In other words, he will take this book and he has made it sufficient. It's enough to know what salvation is and where it comes from. It's clear enough for us to know what we need to do, who God is, who we are, and how we need to respond to him. It's enough and it's clear and it's what we need. It's all we need. We don't need to add more to it in order to figure out what salvation is. That's what God has promised he will do with this book. Now, we use it for other things. Uh, we use it to figure out how to structure our churches. You know, he's not necessarily promised that that's the most important thing that he's going to make really clear. He said, how do you structure your church? Around the gospel. And that's clear. 
We use it to talk about how we raise our kids. And you know, he hasn't really told us it's about how to raise our kids, though it is about how to share the gospel with the next generation. So it's useful for that. But what he's promised to use it for, what he has said will be clear, is the story. As the historian Mark Knoll says, sola scriptura means that the Bible is an open book, that any person of even minimal intelligence can understand the big story of creation, sin, the fall, redemption, spiritual growth, and grace in Christ. Sola Scriptura means that the the grand biblical storyline is clear, and it's there to be discovered for anyone who opens the book and reads it. That's what Scripture is about, and that's what the Reformation was about. The Reformation was a recovery movement. It was a retrieval movement, an attempt to get back to Scripture and to the early church fathers who taught in line with the gospel in order to recover it and rediscover it for the 1500s. That's why we're studying it in the 20-hundreds, or however we say that. Because we need to go back through the Reformation to the Bible itself and, and do what another historian calls take a deeper plunge into the gospel. Go, go deeper into the gospel because when it's under attack, as it was in 1517, those who stand up to defend it have to be very clear about what it is and what it is not. And through that clarity, we can look back to scriptures themselves and then read our own practices and our own beliefs in light of the Reformation and in light of the gospel that comes through in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, and in the church fathers. One of the things I appreciate about the Evangelical Free Church, of of which we are part of, is it's a movement that focuses very much on making the gospel the central thing. Who is God? Who are we? Who was Jesus? What did he do and how do we respond? Those are the things we're willing to fight and die over because those are the core truths of the gospel that must be in accordance with scripture for us to, to call our movement Christian at all. But outside of those things, in disputed matters and other matters, uh, what I love about the EFCA is is that we're committed to unity in love with one another, not trying to make sure everybody agrees on everything. In, In essence, what I love about the EFCA is that we are committed to conversation. We are committed to reading this book together and talking with each other about what it means. We're not committed to believing absolutely everything the same. You know, in our churches, we get to stand next to people who disagree with us on things we might feel passionately about, and we get to sing, and we get to worship with, and we get to hand communion to one another, even though our beliefs aren't all identical. Sola Scriptura does not mean that all intelligent people will read the Bible and come to the same conclusions. That's never going to happen just like five boys arguing about what mom and dad really meant. It's not going to happen. But we do know, and what is clear, is the gospel storyline, culminating in the hope that one day we all will agree on what the Bible says. One day. So we're going to spend the month of October looking at the five solas, the five alones of the Reformation, because by going through them, we get to go back to the gospel. 
So for the next four weeks, we're going to be confronted again and again with the story of the gospel. We're going to look next week at solus Christus, that that in Christ alone, our salvation is provided. Our salvation was purchased by only him. And that Christ alone is our only mediator between us and God. We don't need a priestly class that intervenes for us between us and God. We do need leaders and, and people who show us the way, but not people who stand between us. We have a priest. We have Jesus. And we're going to explore sola gratia and sola fide, that the the salvation Jesus offers comes only by grace. It's not based on any actions that we do to earn it or to deserve it. His grace alone offers salvation, and we receive it through faith alone, not a combination of faith and good works or righteous actions. And we'll finish out the month just a couple of days before uh, Reformation Day or Halloween, whichever you call it, uh, studying soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. Salvation is accomplished solely through God's will and God's actions. So all glory goes to him. None of it goes to us. None of it goes to our teachers. All glory and praise for our salvation goes to him. So join us the next four weeks as we do a a deep dive into Scripture by going through the Reformation on its 500th anniversary. And as we we today, when I'm done, we're going to take communion together. Because we are a people who, as one historian is now saying, maybe we should add another sola. We should add sola ecclesia, the church alone. Maybe the problem is that we got so focused on individual readings of Scripture that we forgot we're a church reading Scripture together. Sola Scriptura in the the context of this body tells us the Bible's the first and final authority that can make us wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And that gives us the confidence to stand firm on the gospel, to give grace and love to others on other issues, and to worship together, to take communion together as a church body united around the one thing that matters most, the gospel itself. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that you have given us in the lives and in the movement of the Reformation and the Reformers, you've given us a a window back into your word and back into the gospel. Thank you for showing us, for explaining for us the gospel in opposition to to anti-biblical teachings of the time that obscured your message of salvation. Lord, I pray that you would help us to examine ourselves in light of the beliefs of 500 years ago to bring us more in line with the teachings of 2,000 years ago. God, make us a, a people that is unified around the gospel itself and these beliefs that are necessary. But, but make us a people that, that is free to converse around the things that are debatable, uh, but that gives love to one another in everything. Make us a people that reads together, worships together, prays together, and glorifies you together. In Jesus' name. Amen.